Okay, recording. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Transplant ID podcast. Today, we're very lucky to have Ricardo LaHose. And you, you may not know that this is actually the second podcast that, that we're recording with him, but only one has become live, which will be this one. And the reason for that is about a minute before COVID crashed on all our heads, uh, we did a podcast recording and it's been lost to the sands of time because COVID came. So uh, he was very generous in uh, agreeing to come on the podcast again. And this time, hopefully there won't be a world-changing cataclysmic event that interferes. He is uh, an associate professor at UT Southwestern. He is the director of the Transplant ID program at that institution. And uh, welcome. Well, thank you for inviting me. It is a pleasure to be here again. I enjoyed the first go, and I am sure I am going to enjoy this second session too. Terrific. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to be the director of transplant infectious at a uh, major academic medical center in the U.S. Let's see. So I was born in Lima, Peru. And I'm going to give you the, a bit of the condensed version, but I was initially interested in biology and molecular biology. And in Peru, you actually can go directly to medical school from high school. But mm-hmm. I chose to do my undergrad studies in those two fields. And in my last year, I decided to take a histology course. And the reason why I did that is because I was interested in cancer biology and I felt like I needed to know more about tissue. So during that course, I was introduced to a patient and and the course was for medical students and it really revolved around patients developing medical conditions, the journey that they went through, treatments that that they will require diagnostic interventions. And I really felt like I wanted to be closer to the patient rather than the important research that will ultimately have impact on them. But I felt like I wanted to be close to patients. So I I decided to enroll in medical school. So I was the one of the oldest in my med school class. And when I did my first rotation, it actually happened in the Tropical Medical Institute of my medical school, where mm. the Gorgas course happens, and that's a tropical medicine course. And I would say that about probably 90% of the patients hospitalized there at that point in the late 90s had advanced HIV with multiple opportunistic infections. Now I became fascinated with the difficult decisions with regards to invasive procedures, lung biopsies, brain biopsies, and the decision to start or not toxic medications empirically in in this population. So I think I remained open to other subspecialties, but I, I kept on going back to IV. So when I decided to apply for residency in the U.S. and and again gave everything a fair chance. I contemplated critical care. I contemplated rheumatology, but I decided on IV, 
when I I did ID at the University of Alabama, I initially was interested in in HIV, and I was very presently surprised to see that the vast majority of patients here were controlled, and that was a mm. big difference from my experience in Peru when a, a minute amount of patients were on ART. So there there was a contrast between the population here and the population in Peru. And it was in the transplant patients that I I, I actually encountered again that that experience of the challenging diagnostic this uh, dilemmas having to do invasive procedures, deciding to start medications that have, can have significant side effects in them. So in my about the towards the end of my first year of fellowship, I, I decided to switch to what I call the bright side of the moon and and the uh, transplant ID. I think that's the condensed version. Fantastic, fantastic. Now, so you mentioned University of Alabama, and it seems like there's a um, an underground tunnel between Lima and Birmingham. Uh, what's going on with that? I I would say that I um, I've been how should I say that there was one resident at the UAB that was the first Peruvian to to match at the program, and and he's an ID doctor. He is one of my favorite ID doctors. Was the first uh, Peruvian resident mm-hmm. to his residency there, and many others came afterwards. And I think uh, the program certainly, the UAB program saw the importance of having a diverse group of residents. And and we were lucky to be amongst those selected. There's definitely, there are multiple collaborations. The Gorgas course is, again, a wonderful collaboration between McGill University, UAB, and the Universidad Peruana Cayetano Heredia. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there are other collaborations, but I think, uh, it, it was a wonderful experience. And, and again, I feel like the, the fact that multiple residents had, you know, the fantastic there at UAV, I think made them inclined to take others in, in the future. Yeah. I, I think the, the story that you tell about one resident sort of spear starting it and being the tip of the spear and then the others following really resonates with me and that sometimes we, we think, oh, you know, this connection that exists, that, that must have just happened forever. And when and then you, you contemplate, you say, no, actually, it was the action of one person who did it and started and did a really good job. And then others followed after that, sort of like you build the bridge and then the trucks come after the bridge is built. And uh, it really does speak to the ability of a committed individual to make a difference. Absolutely. I still stay in touch with him. He, he will remain un, unnamed, but he's a spectacular person. I hope he hears this. Fantastic. So now switching gears a little bit back to uh, transplant infectious disease. One of the issues that we contend with a lot and that instead of running away from it, uh, you run toward it to try to understand it better is donor-derived infections. And uh, the reason that it makes a lot of us so uncomfortable is that it's it's a hard area to study, and uh, it's a huge responsibility to try to um, 
navigate through. So tell us about your experiences with donor-derived infection and some of the work that you've done with it. Well, I, I think it was 2015 that I submitted an application to become an uh, at-large member of the Ad Hoc Disease Transmission Advisory Committee. Mm-hmm. I uh, served three years as an at-large member. Then I served as the incoming chair, I think, for a year. Then two years as as the vice chair, two years as chair, and I'm currently finishing my year as the past chair. And it wasn't really until I became a member of the committee that all the pieces start falling in place. And and I would say that as a transplant ID doctor, although I I knew about organ procurement organizations and I mm-hmm. knew about what they did and I was familiar with some of the things that happened pre-recovery. I have to admit that that it wasn't until then when I I really started learning more. And and the perspective of the OPOs, the transplant coordinators, the surgeons, the patients, the ethics committee is is truly fascinating. And um mm-hmm. and I, I think that that's a really when when I progressively became immersed and the, and the topic really fascinated me from the get go. Uh, it is a wonderful committee. I think everybody should should apply to it. It's a absolutely wonderful experience. So back in July of 2020, you published a 10-year report of what you found. And uh, what did you find? Well, I, I think that that is a project that was Certainly a, a labor of love. And I think Dan Cole is the one that led the, the, the initiative. I, I think uh, somebody also might have started actually the project. But in, in summary, we compiled 10 years worth of potential donor derived transmission events reported to the OPTN via the safety portal. And as you said, the, the manuscript was published in AJT. And it included more than 147,000 donors. And probably the most important finding to me is that the overall rate of donor-derived disease per recipient was 0.18%. So donor-derived events are rare. Let's go a little bit more into detail. From those events, 71% 71% of the transmissions were due to an infection. 22% of them were due to a malignancy. And 7% were due to non-infectious, non-malignant conditions. Some examples are for allergies, amyloid, minimal change disease, and so mm-hmm. And And just because uh, infectious diseases is certainly the center of, of the universe, I am going to focus a little bit more on the infectious category. That was the, 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 the most common category. When it comes to infections, viral infections were presented about a third of the events. And the two most common infections were hepatitis C and hepatitis B. Mm-hmm. After this manuscript was published, there has been a update in the PHS guidelines that at least have the purpose of expanding 
the, the numbers of organs transplanted minimizing the discard, but it also allows to detect this transmission early, and early detection minimizes the morbidity and mortality. Mm-hmm. The next category is bacterial infections, and again, it represented about a third. Pseudomonas and enterobacteria led the list in that category. And a common scenario was that kidney recipient that presents in shock shortly after transplant uh-huh. and the anastomosis has ruptured. And then when all the information is compiled, it escalated to a transmission. Certainly, bacteria are also transmitted via the lower respiratory tract in uh, lung recipients. Then the next category is fungi, representing around 20%, with candida and crypto being the most common. Parasites represent about 13%, with strongy toxoplasma and T. cruciae leaving the list there. TB represented about 4% of the transmissions. Going back to the big picture, although these events are rare, they are very impactful. 15% of those that suffer a donor-derived event lose their blood. Mm. And 18% of those that suffer from a donor-derived event die at 45 days. So they are rare, but they are impactful. Now, in terms of uh, some of the uh, organisms that I saw on the, on the list, you have some uh, ones like cryptococcus and mucormycosis, which I'm assuming would be pretty rare. but it can be quite devastating. So how do you make the decision as to whether to accept an organ or not? Oh, I think that is a, a pretty, pretty complex, what I call is a clinical multivariate analysis. And, and I think the, the first thing that I, I take into account when assessing the risk of donor derived disease is looking for donor risk factors. Mm-hmm. I think in general, the immunocompromised donor is is one in which I will pay close attention. But I think it's it's uh, assessing where the donor was born, medical comorbidities, clinical presentation before becoming an organ donor, imaging, and so forth. At the same time, I, I may be concerned about one disease in particular, and if that is the case, I will think about the biology of the disease. What are the organs that are commonly affected? If feasible and the data is available, the risk of dissemination outside of, let's call it, the portal of entry, what is the period of infectivity? And then I start thinking, well, the the penetrance of the disease is not the same, for example, for a SARS-CoV-2 donor-derived event, the, the, the risk is the highest for lung recipients and, and probably pretty low for the non-lungs. And I start thinking, well, which organ am I going to be uh, accepting? What is the penetrance in that case? Mm-hmm. Um, then I start thinking again, and I mentioned this briefly, does the mechanism of death really match the clinical presentation because I, I think it is important to, to really assess is, is there something there that we're missing? Mm-hmm. Is is there something that's not well explained? Then I think about like any other clinician, what is the pre-test probability based on all that? 
and what is the process probability in the event that the donor was actually tested. And then I say, well, okay, that post-test probability hopefully will be low or low. And then I start saying, do I even have therapies available to mitigate this event? How effective mm-hmm. are they? How easy are they to give? And, and so forth. So I, I think I use all those variables to try and assess. So I, I'll give you a example. I, um, get called by my OPO saying we have a donor that has tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. We are going to close the case. Are you okay with that? And I said, why Why are we closing the case? He said, well, the donor has tuberculosis. But well, does the donor have latent TB, active TB? If latent TB, has it been treated? For how long has it been treated? What was the mechanism of the you know, give me the unocide, you know, can you send me all this information? And it was early in the morning, and lucky, the the next of kin had all that information and was even able to point us towards the medical facility where this donor had been treated. And and I'll just modify slightly the facts just, just for, for HIPAA reasons, but it was somebody that was screened for, for a good reason, had a positive test, was born outside of the United States, but had a pristine record of receiving LTBI therapy mm-hmm. for eight months and three quarters mm-hmm. and, and, and was really pending one week of therapy by the time that he, he dies from a completely unrelated event. And, and I, I sort of felt, well, if that was a candidate, with eight and a half, eight months and three quarters of therapy, I would not be holding that candidate back. Sure. The, that at that point, what's going to become the allograph has seen LTBI therapy for even full length. So I I actually recommended our OPO to allocate, and and we were able to use the lungs from from that donor for one of our recipients. And I think it's just doing that extra. And, and the way that I calculated, were they risk factors? Yes. Is this transmittable? Yes. I mean, is the lung risky? Yes. But the mechanism of death did not smell like active TB at all. And I felt like the ultimate prophylactic strategy had already been almost complete. Yeah. So, so I, I felt like even though there was some risk, I, I felt that that risk was manageable, and, and that's how I proceed. That's just one example. So one of the things that you talk about is allograft quality, and uh, I've noticed that sometimes when I talk to the uh, surgeons or to the uh, kidney doctors, they'll say, look, this is a once-in-a-lifetime match for this particular guy. What can we do to make it happen? How do those considerations in terms of I guess non-infectious disease, we're not trained as infectious disease doctors to think about the kidney patients' risk factors on dialysis or their, for non-infectious or the immunological fit of a uh, organ. How do you put that into your reasoning? Well, I guess you, you're alluding to what other 
I guess in a way we were pivoting to saying, well, what is the risk of, of donor derived disease? How do we, how do we assess it? And we just spoke about that. And mm-hmm. what are other factors that I take into account? And uh, we can go into more detail or into those, but big picture, I think it's very important to factor the mortality on the uh, the pre-transplant uh, mortality of the intended recipient. Mm-hmm. Number two is what is the allograft quality? And, and there are very interesting studies that have tried to conceptualize what are the consequences of declining an organ. So there's one that was published in AJT. I, I really don't remember the year. The title was Turned Down for What? Mm-hmm. And it really alludes, alludes to the consequences of declining what was formerly known as a PHS increased risk donor. And pretty much the gist of the study is that those that declined a PHS organ had the significant higher mortality compared to those that did not. And the most interesting part, going back to your question, is that after five years, only a third of those that declined a PHS organ received a non PHS IRD organ. And when they received that non-IRD organ, the quality of the organ was actually lower. In this case, it was kidney for this study. The quality of that organ was low. So mm-hmm. I think the ultimate goal or, or the way that I think about it, the ultimate goal of transplantation is to improve quality of life, improve survival, and, and also provide an allograft that will have a long half-life. And a organ with good quality should be factored in, in the decision. So I often think and, and go back and forth with our colleagues, well, what is the risk of donor-derived disease? Like I said, in general, it is low. The consequences are high, but the event is rare. What is the risk of mortality on the wait list? And what is the allograft quality? And I think it is, personally, I think it's worthwhile taking a slight risk for a good allograft quality. I think just uh, implicit in there, there's these scenarios where patients have a high panel reactivity antibody or a, you know, they have a certain size where that is the allograft that's actually going to allow them to be transplanted and they may not see another offer in the future. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a, again, a example and I certainly do, do not want to make, you know, bold statements with, with just isolated events, but the first part that we recovered from a SARS-CoV-2 positive donor was for a recipient that had a congenital heart disease. And our surgeons needed a fair amount of pulmonary vessels to recover, to be able to reconstruct all the anatomy and perform the surgery. Recovering the, those pulmonary vessels could only occur if the lungs were not recovered. And I think taking a SARS-CoV-2 positive donor at that point pretty much ensured that, that those lungs were not going to be recovered. 
Mm-hmm. And it was a very peculiar situation for our recipient that that was the, the aloe to, to, to go. Did we take a risk? Well, hindsight 2020, the, the risk appears to be low for the non-lung recipients, but I think it was a, a risk that was worthwhile taking. Needless to say, it occurred with all the adequate consent into the recipient. Know why we were, uh, we felt like this was, uh, this was, um, the best scenario. And again, the patients make the ultimate decision. I, I probably in, in a way, because we are touching this subject, I, I may recently, I stumbled uh, upon a, a statistic that really made me reflect a fair amount of the patients that die on the wait list. Uh, and this is for kidneys of those kidney transplant candidates that died before being transplanted. They received a median of 17 offers before dying. And, and that, if you, if you think about it, there were, it, it's actually 16, but well, it's, it's trivial difference, but they received 16 offers before, uh, before dying on the witness. There were 16 times in which they could have been transplanted, reducing their, their mortality. And those 16 offers happened in a span of 651 days. And the confidence interval for that calculation is between 6 to 41 offers, depending on the state. So mm. I, I think it is a little sobering when we think that a somebody died without a transplant and might have received up to 41 offers. And you were saying, well, those offers probably weren't that good. Well, those organs were used by another center. Hmm. So, given an idea that there may be some some organ decline of viable organs, so I, I found that statistic particularly interesting. So, I do factor mortality on the wait list. I do factor allograft quality. I do factor those nuances between the donor and recipient that I described into into the whole decision of whether to accept or not. It is a uh, striking uh, statistic that you gave, and I think I'll, I'll have to ponder that too. Uh, at least uh, the infectious disease part. There, there's probably uh, many reasons. Turns out that there's a whole big world outside of infectious disease. Who knew? But uh, there's probably many reasons why um, organs are turned down that have nothing to do with us. But at least the parts that we can control in infectious disease definitely worth reflecting on. How to walk that line between being Reckless on the one hand, on the other hand, withholding the opportunity for a life-saving organ from somebody. Yeah, I think that's probably what I struggle the most with. I, I think we, we as a transplant community, have faced new populations of donors. I, I think the PHS increased risk was one of them. The hepatitis C antibody positive or hepatitis C viremic donors was another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, SARS-CoV-2 upper respiratory tract, SARS-CoV-2 lower respiratory tract are some of the populations that we've been faced in the recent past. And I think the constant struggle that we probably all have is, well, how should we proceed in the absence of data? 
because somebody may say, well, I still don't know what are the long-term outcomes of PHK, what was formerly known as PHSIRD. What are the long-term outcomes of using a hepatitis C virulinectomy? What are the long-term outcomes of a SARS-CoV-2 not positive donor. And, and in reality, we don't know the long-term outcomes of some of these populations. But on the other side, we, we have to think, is, am I declining this organ for the right reasons? Am I declining this organ for the right patient? And, and I think we need to balance those. I think in clinical practice, we certainly use the highest quality evidence to treat a patient. But patients progressively, their their status starts to decline, they start failing therapies, and we start reaching for, I'm just using some examples, combinations in antimicrobials or antifungals or interventions that don't have a randomized control trial. Mm-hmm. And it's just because we're running out of options. In the same manner, I think that as the risk of pre-transplant mortality increases, we we also need to start taking some calculated risks. I, I'm not advocating for centers to be reckless, but I certainly think we need to balance those. So, and and just because we recently went through the pandemic, let's let's go through the exercise. So, if we have a liver transplant candidate with a milk of 37, really their pre-transplant mortality is about 200 deaths per 100 witness years. So mm-hmm. that's quite high. And then you say, what are the consequences of using a SARS-CoV-2 not positive donor? And you say, well, does the biology of the disease support that the virus will be outside of the respiratory tract? And at least all the early data suggested that that will be a pretty rare event. Mm-hmm. And and then you start going, well, if the transmission occurred, how would it manifest? And I think it's different when you think about hepatitis C or HIV or hepatitis B. If the allograft comes with one of those viruses, well, probably the transmission is going to occur. But in the case of SARS-CoV-2, how would that look? And some postulated that uh, endotheliitis may happen, thrombosis may happen in the allograft. And, and I think to me it was difficult to conceptualize that the virus will somehow find its way back to the respiratory tract when we recover the liver and, and cause severe ARDS. And again, like I said, the struggle was, should I pass on that organ for somebody with a melt of 40? And I think at the end of the day, the decision is up to the transplant team, and really ultimately up to the patient and their next of kin to say if that is a risk that would like to, they would like to take. And I think that the most important part of the discussion there is emphasizing the risk of death. When, when most mm-hmm. candidates really understand that, they are willing to take the risk. They, they know that they may not see the next allograph. So, so I empathize with what you say. I struggle with it. Should I wait for the best data to really ensure me that I should recover, accept this organ, or should I take some risks? And personally, I think that risks are worthwhile. 
for those with the highest risk of mortality. I hope that makes sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. And just a, a few thoughts on that is one is that we sometimes think that the, the data equals randomized control trial. And there's really a whole series of steps that uh, randomized control trial is just one of those, uh, anything from mechanistic data to observational data to um, things that are uh, a little bit more organized. But if we wait for randomized control trial before doing anything that we need to do in transplant patients, then I think we're going to hurt people. Another thing that's important is different centers have are in different states uh, of being. So, uh, for example, a center that is building up their program in a certain area, they're going to want to be very conservative because having one step back at a critical time can really hurt the whole program. Whereas a center that's operating on, on all four cylinders and, and, and is churning out dozens and dozens of transplants um, a year, hundreds of transplants a year, they, they can afford to be a little riskier because uh, if something bad happens, it's going to be in that context as opposed to uh, sticking out in, in a small sample size. I think that at Hopkins, um, we're in one of those centers that's a bigger center, but uh, one of the downsides is if, if we do something wrong at Hopkins and similar with your center in Dallas, it might be front page of the uh, Baltimore Sun or of the newspaper in Dallas. So I remember those first cases that we accepted that had uh, were from donors with active COVID that caused a lot of concern. We, uh, we ultimately did it because of the considerations that you mentioned, but they definitely caused a lot of concern. I, I agree. I think it is just interesting. I um, think about what you said makes a lot of sense, but, but let's somehow think about the counter argument. Sure. And, and I think there, there is some cognitive biases. And in a way, I do tend to think that we face a scenario where the sin by commission mm-hmm. weighs more than the sin by omission. What do I mean by that? And, and let's think about the things that we do as an ideal. Well, with stop antimicrobials, the patient had the recurrence of infection. We continue antimicrobials and let's say that it's a M abscessus infection and we keep the pigment and to keep on going with tigacycline, imipenem or, you know, other medications. And the patient has Either AIN has a big complication, thrombus, has a collapse. And I think in a way, we are currently in a state where stopping the antimicrobials is, and, and having the complications is viewed in a much more punitive way than, mm-hmm. well, I was trying to help the patient. And I continued them and well, I'm sorry, you had a collapse and you had severe sepsis and you had even a worse outcome than, than do it. So I'll take it back to the donor. Let's, um, take it back to what we do transplant ID. I think that if we, and when I say we, the transplant center commits to, to a patient, mm-hmm. I think we need to try and maximize their chances of survival. And, and that may mean being careful with the organ offers, uh, both accepting and declining and ultimately providing them the chance of long-term survival that involves transplantation. 
But I think that somehow implicit there is that if we accept an organ that leads to a transmission, that could be perceived as a never event. And I think transplantation has an inherent risk of disease transmission that we need to accept. We need to try and minimize it, but unfortunately they're going to happen. So a system that aims for no donor-derived events is a system that may be prone to an increased risk of mortality on the waves. Mm-hmm. And I go back to the sin by omission and the sin by commission. Does it feel worse than the patient unfortunately had the poor outcome because of the transmission, or is it worse that they died on the waves? And that's something that I, I constantly struggle with. I have come to, my, my personal opinion is that they're both equally bad and and that we need to balance both. Back to what you said, the donor-derived transmission events can be very harming to the transplantation system in the United States. And and I am not trying to say that they're not or that they, they may not be impactful, but I think that speaking with our patients, consenting, consenting them adequately on, on the risk of transmission, the consequences, potential interventions, their mortality on the wait list is a, is a good step. It's not going to stop them from, you know, it, it won't stop the impact of, of a transmission event, but at least helps, help us. And I think if you ask most people rationally and you say, Hey, you have a 30% chance of dying during the next year on the wait list versus I estimate the chance of you having a, a transmission event of 2%. If you roll that dice a hundred times, mm-hmm. you're going to help patients more often than not. Maybe the same idea. We Every day we have the opportunity to stop antivirals or continue. Mm-hmm. And I think the promise of let's continue them for a bit longer it's, it's not always a promise that comes with with additional benefit. There's there's a probably inflection point where we start harming patients by by doing more. Just again, just to say that in my mind, it's not that that simple. Sure, sure. So uh, if, just to kind of restate it is if a patient has a donor derived infection, then uh, there's going to be probably a morbidity mortality uh, conference. It might lead to a, a lawsuit. Definitely everybody involved is going to feel uh, horrible. On the other hand, if somebody uh, dies in an outpatient dialysis center that's many miles away from our institution, then uh, we may never even hear about it. Yeah. But they're just as dead. Yep. So uh, in, in our remaining uh, few minutes before we um, finish off, one of the questions, uh, which I think we've covered to a certain extent, is what, what are some of the biggest lessons you've taken from delving into the, uh, the issue of donor-derived infections? I think one of them is that the overall, the mortality on the wait list is many four higher than the risk of donor-derived disease. And, and I think we need to be objective. I often phone a friend because it's easier to be objective when you're not the one being called by by your colleagues. But mm-hmm. I think it is very important not to underestimate the mortality on the wait list and not to overestimate the risk of donor-derived disease. 
I think I quoted you the study where where kidney transplant candidates that died on the waitlist received 16 offers before dying. And that makes me think that in, in the past, I used to think that the mortality in the waitlist was mainly driven due to a mismatch between the number of donors and recipients. But now I think that organ decline may also be playing a role. Like, like I mentioned a second ago, I think aiming for a system that has a zero tolerance for donor-derived events, maybe a system that may have a higher pre-transplant mortality. And, and from a sort of mindset, to me, the approach is my default is to accept. I need a tangible reason to decline. And I need a risk that is higher than the mortality on the wait list or at least close enough or, or, or pretty noticeable for me to say, well, we, we should decline. I think the opposite is saying my default is to decline unless I know it's going to be absolutely safe until unless I know that we have all the data to 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 support use in this population. And it is just between those two extremes that I sort of oscillate depending on the mortality on the waitlist. And I think the the last one, and I, I think again it goes to your previous question, is I think we need to consent our patients. I, I think that if patients knew that there have been 16 offers declined on their behalf, Mm-hmm. I don't know what patients will, would say. I think we need to say, hey, we have this offer. Mm-hmm. These are the the benefits. These are the risks. You know, this is what we think uh, is that risk-benefit balance and let them decide. Make them aware, like you also asked, that maybe the next organ that comes may not be as good quality as, as the one that they're currently being. And uh, I think those are some of the things that I have learned. I I certainly, and I would like to to end by saying that a donor-derived event is a big deal, mm-hmm. but it's so so is a death on the waitlist. Yeah, and they're rare. Yes. So uh, just before we wrap up, you were originally from Peru. And people know a lot about the country uh, in terms of having big mountains. They know about the country in terms of having uh, Machu Picchu and uh, the other uh, highlights of uh, Incan civilization. But one thing that people may not know is that some of the best cooks in the world come from Peru. How has your uh, cooking progress, how has it developed? You, you were working on that when we last talked. Oh, I can speak probably more about food than, than I can speak about donor-derived events and organ offers. But I think I've, I've been cooking more than, than ever. I think we've all needed something to, to keep us calm during these last few years. And I think food just brings a lot of warm, fuzzy feelings to me. You, you usually cook with somebody else. Mm-hmm. You should eat with somebody else. You you show them your culture. You you mm-hmm. show them what you like. I mean, food is is delicious, and I think Peruvian food is uh, incredibly diverse depending on the region. I was born and grew up in the coast, so ceviche is a a common thing, and fish, uh, seafood 
is also and and I think I have made this delicious fish stew almost every Saturday evening for the last three years, and it has just become this this thing that just gives me a great sense of of peace. And there are also great uh, influences, and ceviche is, is an example of Japanese food improving mm. cuisine, cuisine, Chinese food in improving cuisine. And there's something called lomo saltado. That if you see how it's made, it, it is just cla- a classic Chinese stir-fry technique with Peruvian ingredients. And when you trace that dish back, it, it just happened around that time. And then you clearly see the influence of the Spanish that conquered us on, on our food. And, and you would see some uh, rice dishes where you can say like, huh, the difference between this and paella is just minimal. But mm. then when you look at that dish and you look at jambalaya, you, you can see why they're so similar because both areas were, were conquered by the Spanish. So I, I think I've been cooking a fair amount. I've also explored all sorts of pasta dishes, carbonara, and, and, and many other things. But it is it is something that, that I certainly enjoy. Terrific. Well, what a great way to finish. And uh, I look forward to uh, visiting Dallas at some point just so that I can have some of that fish stew that you talked about. Oh, I say that the best Peruvian restaurant in in Dallas is my house, so I'll be sure that you eat the best Peruvian food in Dallas if you come back. Terrific. Well, take care and thank you. Oh, thank you, thank you.